0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are in the final week of a series we've been in called Who Is This Man? Uh, And in this series, what we've done is we've said, hey, let's, let's look at the impact that Jesus has had on our world even to this day, right? This guy who you know, thousands of miles away from us. Over 2,000 years ago, he lived maybe about 33 years. Somehow this one man has had an impact that has influenced our world, has influenced our culture, has influenced our lives even to this day. And so we've looked at Jesus' impact uh, on, on the realm of, of politics, we've looked at Jesus' impact on how we view those on the margins of society. We've looked at Jesus' impact on, on humility. We've looked at his impact on the life of the mind and academia. Uh, last week, we even looked at how Jesus, even to this day, somehow has the ability to transform individual lives. This week, uh, for a final week, we're going to look at Jesus' impact on the arts on the arts, the world of beauty, and in particular, the fine arts. What's Jesus' impact in music and painting and architecture and sculpture and dance and film and theater? And I say that, and some of you may be like... Did Jesus have anything to do with that? Like you, you, you may not realize this, but Jesus has had a profound impact in the realm of the arts. So much so that, that Yale professor Yaroslav Pelikan said that, that after Jesus Christ was here, he's responsible for such an outpouring of creativity that it is, quote, without parallel in the entire history of art. Now why is that? Why would Jesus have such an impact on the realm of art? Why? Well, let me try and get at it this way. Uh, so a, a few weeks ago, uh, I, I was honored. I got to go to uh, the new premiere of, uh, of the new Terrence Malick film, uh, Voyage of Time. Uh, and I got to go there because uh, one of our, our members is, is a film producer, and his wife wasn't able to make it, so I got to be his plus one. Uh, not quite as pretty, but I still think I'm a good date. And, uh, and so at any rate, uh, we go, and, and it was awesome, and it was cool seeing the film. But what was really neat is afterwards, uh, we spent several hours with the cinematographer of this film. And so I got to talk to this dude about, about how he made it, how he shot it, and I shared with him, I said, like, hey, so my favorite scene was this one scene where there's, like, this lava, and it's just slowly sort of oozing. And it was just the coolest thing, because it, it was on IMAX, it was just gorgeous. And so it was, like, this lava was just sort of oozing. And I asked the guy, how did you do that? And, and he shared with me the story that it was just him and his assistant, and this helicopter pilot drops them off on top of this volcanic rock in Hawaii. And they have this 80-pound IMAX Camera and they run, they film the lava that's oozing, and then when it got too hot for them to be there, they'd run to a cool spot, cool down for a minute or two, run back carrying this 80 pound camera, shoot it again, run back and forth, back and forth. He said they did that for as long as they could until literally his assistant's boots, the bottom of them started melting off, and they had to use duct tape to hold them on. I'm not sure how duct tape held up better than rubber, but I don't know, they did. Uh, And I was like, that's amazing. What else do you do? And then he explained to me the coloring process, which is Outrageous. Okay, so, so this is what he does. He goes through each frame of the film and adds color to it. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that works. Okay, but that's what he does. He goes through each frame of the film and there's 24 frames in one second of film. Okay, you add that up over, let's say a really short movie, like a 90-minute film. That's, I did the math on this. Someone can check me on it. You know how I am with math, all right? Uh, but, uh, but we're talking, he did 129,600 frames that needed to be colored. We're talking months and months of work just coloring the film, let alone the over, over a decade it took to film it, to get the shots that they wanted. So I was thinking about that, like, like what drives someone to do that? What drives someone to spend that much time, that much energy, that much money on creating a piece of art? Why would they do that? Well, it was interesting, before they, they showed the film, uh, when, when we went to see it, was at the Bullock? Uh, two of the producers for the film got up front, and they shared with us uh, what Terrence Malick's motivation was for this whole film, why he wanted to do this in the first place. And it was a quote from Albert Einstein, and, and I want to share it with you. This was his inspiration. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. He to whom the emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. To know what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms. Now what Einstein's getting at here is this, is that arts, true art, requires inspiration. Inspiration. That to do the work to create something as, as beautiful as a film or to do the work to create something like a poem or to do the work something that, to create something beautiful, even like remodeling your kitchen. You need inspiration. You need something mysterious outside of yourself that draws that out of you. And what we see in our text for today, in this little story of Jesus turning water into wine, you probably heard it in Sunday school, this little story of Jesus turning water into wine, is we see that Jesus provides that inspiration. And he does that by this. Jesus uh, provides inspiration for beauty just simply by his presence. He provides inspiration for beauty by the hope he offers. And he provides inspiration for beauty by his suffering. Okay, He inspires by his presence. He inspires by, by his hope. And he inspires by his suffering. That's what we're going to see today. So look with me. He inspires by his presence. Look at our first two verses. On the third day, there is a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. All right, so let's just pause here. These first two verses. Now, if you think about this, this is John chapter 2. This is kind of weird that this happens. Because if John chapter 1... Uh, We've covered it a few times here, but John chapter 1 is this incredible argument that John has that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that Jesus is God come to live with us. And so you think of this big argument that John makes that Jesus is God in the flesh, you'd think in the next chapter, it's going to be this big thing, right? Like, what's it going to look like for God in the flesh to be with us? What incredible things is he going to do? What's the first thing he has Jesus do? Go to a wedding. Wow. Very exciting. Big deal, right? And what's his first miracle here? He turns water into wine, right? Instead of a party lasting two days, it lasts three. Woo, right? Big deal, big deal. I mean, in the grand scheme of Jesus' miracles, this is not that big of a deal, right? He calms a storm. He makes people who can't walk, walk. He raises dead people back to life. And John says, I'm kicking my story off by telling you about the time he turned water into wine. What is that about? Why does he do that? What's going on? Well, it's here we see why Jesus is such an inspiration to the world of beauty. Because by simply being at this wedding, by simply engaging the material world, we see Jesus set a precedent that was unheard of in religious thought and philosophical thought before this. Jesus sets a precedent here that is unheard of in Philosophical thought, in religious thought prior to this. See, traditional Eastern religions would tell you this. They'd say, hey, the material world is just an illusion. It's just an illusion. And and so, so your goal really is, is to just kind of escape, just really focus on things that are unseen, just sort of focus on, on the spiritual aspects of this of, of life. And the Western religions at the time of Jesus, both the Romans and the Greek, some of them would say it was illusion, but most of them would say, no, 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 the material world. It's not just, it might be an illusion, but, but at, its, at its best, it's an illusion, and at its worst, it's bad, it's dirty. And so in the Western thought at this time was, hey, how can we escape the material realm? It's Platonic thought. How can we get out of here, get to the realm of ideas? But what does Jesus do here? Jesus has, John has Jesus, God in the flesh, has him at a wedding has him engaging the material world. And in fact, Jesus is engaging a base element of the material world, right? Water. And then we see Jesus turns that base element into wine, which is a product of human culture, right? It's, it's something that humans created. This is amazing. So what Jesus does just by being at this wedding, just by turning water into wine, is he affirms the material world, and he affirms the products of human culture. See, Jesus' very presence inspires beauty. The fact that God would do that inspires beauty. Because what else is art but a rearrangement of a basic element of creation to a complex product of beauty? Right, that's art. It's a rearrangement of a basic element of creation to a complex product of beauty, right? So you think about music. What's music? Music's taking the basic element of sound, and rearranging it in such a way so that it's beautiful. What's literature? It's taking the basic element of life and rearranging it in such a way and turning it into narratives and poems and stories that touch us and move us profoundly. What's sculpture and architecture? It's taking basic elements of stone or clay or wood and rearranging them into something beautiful. I mean, so for example, if you just look at our baptismal font here. Uh, So I shared with you all last weekend Uh, I was speaking at this men's retreat, right? And it's these guys from central Texas that were there to shoot guns, right? This was not the crowd that you would expect to really be into the finer things of life, right? Um, And and so I'm there, and and I happen to have our baptismal font in the backseat of my car, because you never know when you're going to need it. You know what I mean? You guys get it. You travel around with that, right? So, so I'm traveling around with our baptismal font in the back seat of our car, and the guy who actually made it, the, the guy we commissioned to, to make this for us, uh, was actually at this retreat. And so I told him, I was like, hey, John, I got this in the back of my car. He's like, oh, hey, can I show it to some of the people here? And so he gets it out. I kid you not, there is one point where this, is, this was sitting in a parking lot, and we had like 25 good old boys from Texas gathered around this thing, like observing the intricacies of this woodwork and and taking in all this stuff. I mean, it blew my mind. Now, why is that? Why is that? Here's why. Because there's something transcendent about taking the base elements of creation and crafting them into something beautiful. There's something transcendent about that, and Jesus affirms that here. Jesus affirms that here. And so that's why, within a few decades of Jesus' life, his first followers said, this this guy's moved us in such a way, we got to do something. And so they started writing poems, and they started writing hymns about him. And then then they started painting pictures of him, icons and stained glass windows and, and paintings all over the place and sculptures. So much so that even, you know, Scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus looked like, right? We don't know actually what he looked like. And yet, he's one of the most recognizable figures in the entire planet. Tell me how that works, right? Like a guy we don't know what he looks like is one of the most recognizable figures in the entire planet. It's amazing. Now we see in light of this text that that Jesus inspires beauty in general just by his presence, but we also see that Jesus inspires beauty by the hope that he offers, by the hope that he offers. Look with me at verses 7 to 10 in our text. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. All right, so Jesus tells these servants, he says, hey, take, take the water that, that he knows he's turned into wine. He says, take the water I've turned into wine to the master of the feast. Uh, now, the best way, master of the feast is maybe not a concept we're super familiar with. The, the best way to think about that is the master of the feast would have been, like, the MC of the wedding reception is, is kind of the idea. So you got the bride and the groom, and then you got the master of the feast. Like, his job is to make sure that the party's happening, that people are having a good time, that they're dancing, that they're enjoying themselves, that they're having a good time. Like, like that's his deal. He's, he's the hype man, right? Uh, he's... Uh, He's the Flavor flavor of, for those of you Public Enemy fans out there, I know there's a lot of you here, that's what he did. He's the Flavor flave of the ancient world. And so his job, keeping the wine flowing, keep people happy. And Jesus supplies this guy with the best wine that he's ever had. Best wine he's ever had. It's as if Jesus is saying to him, Hey, bro, you may be the master of this feast, but I'm the master of the Feast of Feasts. I'm the Lord of the party of parties. You're in charge of this party, but I'm in charge of the ultimate party. The party that every party is actually pointing to. And someone says, what are you talking about? Jesus is in charge of the party of parties? That's weird. Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets would speak about a day when the Messiah would come. And the prophets would say, hey, when the Messiah comes, it's gonna be an awesome day. There's gonna be good food, there's gonna be good wine, the wine's just gonna be flowing. It's going to be an awesome time. Listen to these words from Isaiah 25. On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. See, in this act of turning water into wine, Jesus is saying, hey, the real party's just getting started. The real party's just getting started. I'm, I'm here, the Messiah's here. I'm launching God's renewed creation. There's gonna be no more death. There's gonna be no more tears. There's gonna be no more suffering. That's just gonna be good friends and good food and good wine. Now, of course, we look at our lives now and we say, it's not exactly like that. What do you mean he launched it? No, that day's coming, but he started it there. Suffering and pain are real, and we'll get to that in time. But Jesus is saying, hey, this is what I'm headed towards. Jesus is saying, this is my end goal. This is the destination. This is the feast that I'm preparing. This is where we're headed, this cosmic party in the future. And he paints this beautiful picture of hope. And so, so let me just tell you, just as a church, Uh, This is why we do some of the things that we do. This is why we go to community events and try to add value to them by handing out koozies or water bottles, by providing activity for kids, squirt a shirt, decorating cookies... Uh, this, is, this is why we do events. We did Pubology last week. We're going to have Axe Fest here in a month. Uh, we're going to have an event called Carols and Beer in December. I'm very excited for that. Uh, it's, and, and so it's why we're always encouraging one another to have our friends and our neighbors over to open our homes to other people, right? Because we want to be a church that parties well. Like, I, I want to be known as the church that parties the best, in Leander, if not the entire city of Austin, all right? Like, that's what we want to do. Not irresponsibly, not immorally, but look, Jesus brings the best wine to the party. Jesus brings the best wine to the party, and it offers a picture of hope. It offers a picture of the eternal hope that we have. And man, we want to do the same thing. We want to invite people into that sort of life. And see, this hope that Jesus provides has been an inspiration for art for centuries. In 604 A.D., Pope Gregory uh, said that music must be used to, quote, lift the soul to God. And so Gregorian chants uh, were invented, and and they became the rock and roll of the Middle Ages. Uh, Modern music notation, you may not know this, modern music notation was invented in the Middle Ages by monks who wanted to spread the joy of music. Uh, My boy Martin Luther uh, wrote hymns inspired by songs in the beer halls of Germany. People like Johann Sebastian Bach, Handel, Mozart, African American spirituals, these were all written because of this hope that Jesus offers us, and the list could go on and on and on. Uh, A modern example of this is uh, the jazz musician uh, John Coltrane, that his greatest, and arguably, depending on who you read, would say one of the greatest albums of all time, uh, A Love Supreme, he dedicated that album to the hope that he found in Jesus. Uh, He said as much in an interview that he had. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. You see, Jesus inspires beauty. He inspires beauty in light of his presence. He inspires beauty in light of the hope that he offers. But Jesus also inspires beauty in light of suffering, in light of suffering. Look with me at verses four to five in our text. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, we skipped over these verses initially, but when we first read it, you probably noticed it, right? Like, like Jesus seems a little harsh, right? Because his mom comes up to him and is just like, she knows Jesus, she knows his love, she knows his power. And she's like, hey, they're out of wine, you want to do something about it, right? That's totally okay for her to do that. And how does he respond? He says, woman. Whew. Right? Sounds harsh. Uh, and it's actually probably meant to. So, so what's going on here? Well, What's going on is Jesus is clearly distressed, like his, his mind is somewhere else. He's thinking about something else. Well, what is that? Well, I, I heard someone put it this way. If you think about it, G- Jesus is a single guy, right? He's not married, single guy, at a wedding. What do single people at weddings think about? To a greater degree or a less degree, what do they think about? Think about their wedding. Is it going to happen? Who's going to be two? What's it going to be like? Will it ever happen? I don't know. So Jesus is thinking about his wedding day, but here's the thing about Jesus. He knows his wedding day. He knows his wedding day. He knows his bride. See, throughout the scriptures, one of the main metaphors that God uses as he relates to his people is that of a husband to his wife, that of a groom to his bride. And Jesus knows his bride. And so Jesus is thinking of the hour in which he's going to be united to his bride. And that's what he says in the second half of his response. He says, my hour has not yet come. And that word hour in the Gospel of John is huge. Uh, He uses it, the the Gospel writer John uses that word, the hour, Jesus' hour, his hour, that hour, this. He uses that word over a dozen times in this tiny little book. And so what's going on? What's Jesus' hour? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, verse 27. Verse 27. Says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, forgive me, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so what's Jesus' hour? What's his wedding day? It's the cross. It's the cross. Jesus is thinking about the cross. He says as much in this same chapter, chapter 12, 32 to 33. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth... Will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, Jesus not only inspires beauty by his presence, he not only inspires beauty by the hope that he offers, but he inspires beauty by his suffering. By his suffering. That on the cross, Jesus draws all people to himself, not just because he's our atoning sacrifice before God, though he's that, but also because on the cross he enters into our suffering. And if there's one thing that's universal in this world, it's suffering. We've all suffered in one sense or another. And on the cross, Jesus says, I'm entering into that, into the depths of that with humanity. See, Jesus, his presence, shows us that God is with us. Jesus' life shows us the hope that we have. But on the cross, we see that God enters into our suffering, that God cares about our suffering. Now that's inspiring. That's beautiful. Let me show you all a picture. Uh, It's one that, that you'll probably be familiar with. Have you all seen those praying hands before? Right, even if you didn't grow up in church, anything like that, you, you've seen these praying hands before, um, and, and they're, uh, they're done by an artist named uh, Albrecht Dürer in 1503. And There's actually a story behind these hands. And um, the story is this: is that when Dürer was was trying to get up and going as an artist, uh, you, you may not know this. Artists don't make a lot of money, uh, right? <laughs> and uh, starving artists, right? And so, so as he's he's getting up and running, trying to do his thing, he had a buddy who was also an aspiring artist. But his buddy said, "Hey, man." I want you to make it, and so tell you what, I'm going to go work in the mines, and the money I make from working in the mines, I'm going to give to you to sustain you, to help you pursue your art, and so so Dewar went to work pursuing his art, doing his thing uh, while his buddy's in the mines, and he actually started to get pretty successful as an artist, and actually started to get some income, and so he was able to provide for himself and his friend, and so he went to to where these mines were and went to his friend. He said, hey, buddy, you don't got to work anymore. I'm going to start paying for your needs so you can start doing your work as an artist. And so his friend said, all right, and, and he got to, to work starting to paint again. But what had happened is that Dewar's uh, friend's hands had been so damaged by his time in the mines, by his work in the mines, that he couldn't paint with any skill anymore. And so he couldn't paint anymore. And Dewar, you know, is, is upset about this, and he said, what, what am I going to do? And he had seen his friend's hands pray many times before. And so he said, "I just I'll at least capture that. This man's hands that enabled me to do this work, I'll capture his prayers to God. And so he drew this. And now 500 years later, we know this guy's hands. You see, out of great suffering came something beautiful. Out of great suffering came something beautiful. Let me do one more picture. Uh, This is a picture that will be familiar to to some of you. It's the the 20th century uh, Spanish painter Salvador Dali. Uh, it's titled Christ of St. John of the Cross. Uh, now, if you've seen this before, what's kind of unique about this painting is that if, if uh, you know, most paintings of crucifixions, you just kind of stare at Jesus head on, right? Like you just stare at his face and he's just looking at you. But the angle of this is what's so unique about it. Now, Dali, in order to, to do this painting, he actually hired a stuntman uh, to, to hang from, what are they called again? Uh, Gantry. Okay, so a gantry overhead. And Dolly wanted to see the weight of gravity on the human body, because that's what Jesus would have done. But on top of that, you see it's like it's even more accented. Not only is the weight of gravity pulling Jesus down, but it's almost like there's something pushing on top of him, pushing down on Jesus. And then you can see Dolly uses this kind of scenic landscape, uh, and that was actually the bay that he was living in at that time in his life, that that's where he lived. He painted the picture of of where he lived. And so it says, if... Dolly is showing the weight of the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus, but he's doing it over him, for him, for his community, for his people, for the world that he's in, where he lives. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's something we can tap into. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. We do not want merely to see beauty... We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. See, this is the story of the cross. That Jesus went into deep suffering. And in so doing, he identifies with each of you as you suffer. But from the horror of the cross came something beautiful. That he united himself with you. He united himself with you. That on the cross he took your sin and gave you his righteousness. That he took your death and gave you his life. He took your shame and gave you his joy. See, out of great suffering came something beautiful. That Jesus would unite himself to you. And that's inspiring. Let's talk to him now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you offer us hope. We thank you that you suffered for us. God, may we be inspired by your love. May we be moved by it. May When we see beauty, may we think of our good creator, the ultimate artist. May that inspire us to show beauty to others. Teach us to rest in your grace, Jesus. Teach us to see that you've united yourself to us. May that be enough for us this day and always. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.